0: Show
1: all about golf, from putting to driving, from hooks to whatever. Now, here's your host of the Back Nine Boys Golf Show, Rich Styles. Hey, good morning, and welcome to the show. The Back Nine Boys Golf Show is brought to you by Club Car, the leader in sport utility and personal vehicles, by RSM, proud sponsor of the RSM Classic, giving back to our community, by Bridgestone Golf, get fitted for your tour B ball today, and by the club at Sea Ponds on the show we're going to be talking with drew brasswell with the gsga we're going to be talking about the uh, georgia golf hall of fame the inductees the ceremony the banquet for 2024 we are also going to be talking with john of golf data tech about the trends and the brands in equipment that are being sold apparel and shoes and gloves and then we'll end up talking with david errington who is the short game instructor at the Sea Island Golf Performance Center. I learned a lot from the interview, and I hope you will, too. But first, let's get to Drew Braswell. Good morning, Bruce, or Drew. <laughs>
0: Good morning, Rich. How are too you? Many,
1: too many names here. Sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. No worries. It's great I don't to know where you. that came from. Out of left field, I'm sure. Well, <laughs> all right. So, 2024 Georgia Golf Hall of Fame induction ceremony and banquet. Tell us all about that.
0: Yes, sir. So we we've got just a few short weeks left before it's before it's game time. Um, So every year, uh, the Georgia State Golf Association will host the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame, and it is historically held at the Atlanta Athletic Club in Johns Creek. Yeah, in Johns Creek, Georgia. I mean they they are phenomenal. Um, They roll out the red carpet for us every year. It's a great event. it is on March the twenty third. It's a Saturday. Um, we had. It, it's just a time where we get to honor uh, all of the golf Hall of Fame members, the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame members, as well as specifically this night is more focused on the four new inductees that we'll have for that specific year. Uh, and this year we've got four uh, amazing people that um, that are well worthy of the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. Um, and just, just real quickly, I'll run through the names. It's John Gehring, uh, he is a PGA professional. Uh, Bob Royak, Cindy Schreier, and the late Carl Selden, who was also a PGA professional. And uh, I'll just give a quick little bio on each. Okay, just so, that'd be great. Yeah, just so you'll know a little bit about these people. Um, so the first one is John Gehring. John was born here in Atlanta. Uh, he attended Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Um, fun fact, he, he played on the same golf team with Arnold Palmer. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah. So in, in 1957, this is after Arnold had graduated already. Um, but back in 1957, he won the ACC championship. Wow. Uh, So following golf, he, uh, he enrolled enlisted in the army. Uh, and then he began his career in golf. He was the head pro at Atlanta country club at Sea Island Golf Club, at Peachtree Golf Club. So a lot of these well-known uh, Atlanta area or uh, even Sea Island being a little farther outside of Atlanta, just mm-hmm. really well-known courses he was the head pro at. Um, and uh, I'll tell you, Rich, he is widely regarded as one of the best golf instructors of that time. No uh, kidding. And, and such uh, an amazing instructor that um In 1981, he was awarded PGA of America's PGA Golf Professional of the Year. Oh, that's Uh, incredible. What an honor for that. Yeah, yeah. A a national honor. And um, John is one of the most humble guys I've ever met. Um,
2: Hmm.
0: And even talking to him this morning, he's still trying to figure out how he's worthy of this, (laughs) how he deserves to be in. And uh, everybody I talk to. Everybody I talk to, and I'm not from Atlanta, so I don't have a lot of the history here. Um, I've been in Atlanta for about three years, but everybody I talk to in Atlanta, just, I mean, glowing reviews for John. Uh, and so they're all so happy that he's in. Uh, next, uh, Bob Royak. Bob was actually born in New York. Um, he started playing golf when he was really young, and uh, he, he actually won the New York State Boys Junior Amateur. In uh, 1979, and then following uh, that, he so for college he moved down to Florida and joined the University of Tampa golf team. Uh, was all all American third team in 1983, um, and then it wasn't until uh, kind of once he was eligible for senior golf, right? So that's when his game kind of just it it ramped up it. It peaked, if you will. Uh, I'm still waiting on my golf game to peak. One day maybe it will, uh, but it hasn't think- gotten here yet. But his um, – when he when he was eligible for the senior golf, like that's where it took off. It was oh. – uh, uh, he was winning left and right. He's won so many different tournaments. I couldn't – we don't have time for me to list them all. Um, right. But just a couple of the highlights, uh, he's won multiple Georgia State championships. He's won so many four-ball championships. Um, but the highlight of his career, if you ask him, he would say, and in and, and agreement, I would say is the 2019 U.S. Senior Amateur Champion. Uh, and that was held in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, so nationally, he was the top golfer. Um, and so, which is no surprise if you, if you ask him, people here in Georgia, his other senior golfers, um, I mean, just he, he's a standout. He really is. Um, and, and so we get the honor and the opportunity to, to really honor him and, and highlight his, his career and just what he's done for the game of golf here in Georgia. Um, okay. And then one of, our third inductee is Cindy Schreier. Uh, Cindy was born in Forest Park, Georgia, just right outside uh, kind of the airport area um she didn't get an early start to golf she started playing around 15. uh but i mean she she took to the game really quickly she was taught by her her dad uh and then she used to play a lot with her brother excuse me uh and and caught on so quickly so she started playing at 15 and won the inaugural georgia girls championship shortly thereafter um she earned following high school. She earned a scholarship to UGA, so she was a she was a dog. Um, and then won the 1984 NCAA individual championship and 1986 U.S. Women's Amateur Public Link, Public Links Championship. Um, wow! And then so so following college, she joined the LPGA uh, and she played on the tour for 16 years. Uh, she won. I want to say, twenty, I think it was twenty-three top, or she had twenty-three top ten finishes and one win, uh, and so just was one of the top women's golfers in you know in her in her college years and then following college um, was just a real standout.
1: Yeah, and, and there was a lot of uh, good lady players at that point in right. the LPGA well, that are also right. now in the in the World Golf Hall of Fame during that time. That's right. That's yeah. right.
0: Um, and, and so she used to play a lot with her brother and, and I think I'm correct in saying this, but I think she played on the, the, the boys golf team in high school, uh, because they didn't have a girls team. Um, but even, even then, like she was, she was beating a lot of those boys that she was playing with. Um, so golf was just, it was really natural to her, um, And so our our fourth inductee uh, on March 23rd is going to be Carl Seldon, the late Carl Seldon, passed away in July of 2020. Uh, But I'm so glad that we get the honor of uh, just remembering him in in this way uh, and honoring his his legacy. Uh, So Carl was born in Atlanta, another Atlanta guy. Um, actually when he went to Clark college, played golf and basketball in college, uh, following college, he enrolled in the army and he was there for two years. And, um, Carl made history by becoming the first African-American to join the PGA in Georgia. Wow. Uh, So really a trailblazer. Um, everybody that I talked to, uh, in that circle with him, uh, just, I mean, they glow about him. They rave about him. Um, he was, uh, the PGA head pro at the city of Atlanta golf courses. Uh, and so that was kind of his niche. He was, he loved to teach people, um, specifically young people. Uh, he was such an ambassador for the game of golf. Um, when it came to Atlanta's youth, uh, he, he, he saw the need there. He saw how he could be, um, a good example, a good role model for these kids, um, not only in golf but in life and, yeah. and I mean you know rich how golf is more than just a game of golf right it it's, is it's, it is it's a social um it's a, a social game but it's also a game where growing up my dad taught me how to play but there's so much more to golf than just the game you know it's yeah, how to live is. it's how to be a man of integrity uh, and so this is what he really wanted to instill in those kids um and again like i said he passed away in 2020 but he left such an amazing legacy here in the atlanta area uh, when it comes to the golf community and just the the junior golf in that area so um so those are the four that we get to honor on march the 23rd uh if you know we'd love to have everybody that can be there attend uh, it's it's open to the public again it's at uh, atlanta athletic club um If if you want to get tickets, you can go to our website. That's www.gsga.org. That's GSGA for Georgia State Golf Association. Um, So, yeah, uh, we'd love to have anybody that wants to come out. Well, you know,
1: each one of them has a special gift uh, that they were able to pass along. I mean, teaching adults is, is great for this game of golf, which really is a game of life. But Carl, working with the kids, I mean, that is truly a gift and an act of love just to be able to work with the kids and try and get them into
0: this game that they could play forever. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Kids kids are hard to reach anyway. Yeah. Um, Being a dad, I know how hard it is to get kids to stop and listen. Um, Uh, But when it's your passion, I mean, that's that's what you want to do.
1: Right. So. So let me ask you this, Drew. How do you get nominated and can can anybody be nominated or are there certain requirements that have to be as far as the Georgia State Golf Association is concerned?
0: Yes, sir. So anyone can nominate anybody at any time. Uh, we have a nomination form on our website. Uh, I, I will say. Don't assume that someone's already been nominated. Uh, if, if you think someone is worthy of the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame, put in a nomination. Um because a lot of times we'll see, you know, we'll hear the comment, oh, I thought, well, they, I thought they were already nominated. Why are they not in, you know? So, um, but once the nomination, once we receive that nomination, it stays active for 10 years. Um, and the deadline, each year we have a deadline for submission in order to be considered for that year. Uh, and that's okay. July 1st. So, okay. um, and once, once those all, once the nominations are received, uh, we have a, a specific um, Hall of Fame committee, and, and we meet a few times each year. And they'll go over every single nomination, uh, read over all the details, all the uh, the achievements, um, and and so the committee decides each year who those four are that are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Hmm. And you've got
1: 131 members, and now plus these. Four new ones, so it'll be one hundred and thirty-five. That's right. Um, basically, um, I mean, it's it's an honor, obviously, to be nominated, even more so to be voted in uh, to the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. That's what right. a great opportunity
0: and a That's great right. a great thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, give us the list. Get- I was going to say, ahead. just real quick, we've got a list of every single Hall of Fame member on our website. So if anybody's interested in seeing who they are. Uh, you can easily find that out.
1: And give us the website again so folks can um, purchase tickets if they want or just find out
0: more about it. Yes, sir. It is www.gsga.org. That's GSGA for Georgia State Golf Association. And and Drew, how many people usually show up in, a, in attendance? I mean, I'm sure the
1: family and friends and uh, people that may know the four inductees would
0: be there, but how many others show up? so we typically have anywhere between 300 and 350 people really every wow year. yeah okay. it's, it's a big deal and it's funny rich a lot of times we'll hear i'll hear after the event man uh, and usually from the the new inductees man i didn't know it was such a big event i didn't realize yeah. it was this well done and so uh it, it's it's it, it's a red carpet kind of night right so, um and it starts out again with the with the cocktail hour. It's just a time to hang out. Uh, for those of uh, your listeners that are familiar with Athletic Club, they've got a what they call the 1898 House. It's in the back. It's on the back side of the the clubhouse, to where it overlooks the golf course. Uh, and so they've got a nice little patio out there, and that's where we have our. Uh, cocktail hour, our reception, and it's we have memorabilia tables out there for the inductees to show off kind of some of their stuff, trophies, wow. magazine clippings, yeah. um, that kind of stuff, and and just to kind of hang out and get to know each other. And then following that, we have the the members' dinner or the uh, the dinner the induction dinner, and then the ceremonies begin.
1: Mm-hmm. How cool is that? I mean, what do you do during the ceremony? We've got about a minute left. What
0: do you do for the ceremony? Sure. So it's each each individual uh, inductee is recognized one at a time. And so once they're once they're introduced, it, there's a quick little video that our communications team has put together. It's usually six or seven minutes, but just tells the basic why of of the inductee and their okay. worthy uh, their um, achievements in order to to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And then they, really they give a little speech, uh, and it's just a great night of honoring them and just the game of golf in Georgia.
1: Yeah, that is really, really cool. Yeah.
0: Drew, thank you for being with us. I appreciate you giving us the info
1: on the uh, Georgia Golf Hall of Fame and the ceremony and how they get in and who the four people are. Uh, that's just great. So thanks again for being with us. Yes, sir. Thank you, Rich. Hey,
3: guys. Paul Tesori here, caddy for Tom Kim. Glad to be on the back nine boys
1: podcast. I hope to be on again soon. And welcome back. I'm Rich Stiles. We're on the phone with uh, John Pryzmiak of Golf Data Tech. And John, thank you again for being with us.
3: Well, Thanks, Rich. Good to be here.
1: All right, so let's talk about some of the equipment sales coming off uh, the PGA show. Uh, what have you learned as far as your research? Well, I mean,
3: the good news is uh, 2023, you know, which is uh, seems like ancient history, but is only uh, less than two months ago. 2023 was, uh, you know, a pretty good year. We saw uh, club sales kind of peak a little bit and and fall slightly, uh, but it was more than made up for by uh, golf ball sales because we had really good weather. Uh, Rounds played were up. So we saw a lot of... um, a lot of people out playing golf late into the year, and that that drove the overall sales of uh, golf balls and gloves consumables uh, to higher levels. And uh, so in total, the equipment business was pretty flat, which, you know, in some years you'd go, well, that's not good, is it? And uh, the reality is, it is good because we're about 40% higher than we were in 2019 which was uh, the last full year before the pandemic. So that just kind of gives you a relative measure of where we sit. Uh, As we go through the first couple months here of uh, 24, uh, January was generally across most of the United States, a horrific month weather-wise for golf. Uh, It was cold. It was wet uh, in the areas where they typically play, particularly in the Southeast. So uh, that really put a put a damper on on things like consumables uh but uh, overall you know i i think we're in pretty good shape rounds played we're down 17 percent for january but that by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing i mean it's just january is a, a small month it represents less than three percent of total rounds and uh you know it, you you'd never want to start off in the hole but if, if you're going to have a bad weather month january is a good month to have it because you have plenty of time to make it up and uh, certainly from what we've seen February uh, for most of the country seems to have been very good
1: and that obviously is is due to weather getting back to equipment um, mm-hmm. w- what has been selling the most has it been full sets of irons drivers hybrids yeah,
3: yeah t- uh, 23 was pretty much a uh, it was a year when irons came back it was a pretty good year for irons. The um, the driver category was a little soft, a little softer than irons. Um, part of what, it, you know, a lot of these things are just cyclical depending on the uh, perceived technology that some of the big brands may have out there that kind of stimulate demand. Uh, last year was a year when there were a lot of really good iron brands or a lot of good iron models out there. Um, that stimulated people to buy, uh, versus uh, this year. I I think there's a lot of indications that people are probably going to be shifting back into driver mode. Um, you know, and they typically it's very rare other than say pandemic years that you'll see both irons and drivers go, you know, off at the same time. Uh, reality is, people usually are going to choose one or the other when it comes time to make their purchase. Um, and certainly that with the, you know, the price of a driver today at, uh, anywhere from $600, if it's a standard driver up until, you know, up over, over a thousand dollars, if you're getting some customized, it's a, it's a considered purchase and people kind of weigh what they're going to buy. And, uh, make a decision to buy one or the other it's rare they
1: buy both you know the interesting thing is that if you look at the marketing and i know you do and i know i do you know it seems that uh you know each year uh the drivers come out uh you know they all say we're we're up to the max as far as what we can do and this driver is going to go 15 to 20 yards farther and if you add it up over the last Three, four, five years. As far as a marketing standpoint, we should be hitting our drivers with no issue, no weight lifting, three hundred and thirty yards with no problem. But we know that's not the case. You're not.
3: You're not hitting it that far. Rich.
1: <laughs> if I hit it <laughs> twice,
3: <laughs> uh, and I think the reality is the, the the club manufacturers, as much as the, um, you know, the. Powers that be would love to rein them in. They have a lot of ways to improve their products uh, through technology, and, and they're kind of uh, figuring some of those out. I mean, today you find more focus on uh, the ability to miss hit shots. You have high MOI drivers. You have uh, drivers that are have more forgiveness built in throughout the face. I mean, there's a lot of ways to make it so that you play better because, let's face it, most of us don't hit it consistently on the you know the exact sweet spot. You're kind of missing either to the heel or to the toe or up or down. And uh, if they can make their clubs perform better on those shots, uh, in total, it makes you a better player. It, um, you know, it, it at least makes you hit the ball straighter.
1: One thing, do you, you know – I look at people's clubs. I look at, you know, what they're buying in drivers and three woods, five woods hybrids. But it seems like a lot of people are doing a mixture. I mean, they're not doing, you know, full one brand. They may have one brand of of the woods and then another brand of irons and even another set of wedges. And then putters are all over the place. But it it just doesn't seem like they're all going to one brand all the time.
3: Yeah, no, that's very much the case. Every product we we consider each of these as like product subcategories. You know, there are some brands that are particularly perceived as best in drivers. Other brands are best for fairway woods, and um, and people mix those up. It's not like the old days when you bought a. Um, yes. I mean, I can remember my dad having a set in the in the '60s of uh, McGregor. Uh-huh. McGregor irons and McGregor woods and McGregor putter. You know, was, everything was McGregor Uh, today's today is a golfer. They, they like to mix it up. They want to find what works best for them in each of the categories. Uh, And certainly, you know, even within wedges, there are certain brands that are perceived as being great for um, you know, playing from the sand and others that are better for hitting lob shots, you know? So there's a lot of specialization. It's probably no different than if you go to the supermarket and you wanted to get, uh, I don't know, breadcrumbs in the old days, you had a choice. You had breadcrumbs or you had breadcrumbs and that was it. Today there's you know Italian breadcrumbs, there's regular breadcrumbs, yeah. there, you know, there's a million different ones. It's like I, I there's Japanese panko breadcrumbs. I just want yeah. breadcrumbs, you know. Yeah. It, I think there's a lot of that going on.
1: Yeah, there's uh, definitely a oversaturation, not only in that but in cars. I mean in the in in the in the golf category as far as brands. I mean you have the well known brands, but you have a lot of lesser brands that are really trying to make a mark have you seen any uptick in their sales
3: yeah it's it is interesting I, when i started in golf business back in the 80s um, there were brands that were the leading brands that in on the club side that might have a 12 14 market share in any of the product categories today uh, the top three brands, top four brands, are, are commanding seventy-five to eighty percent of all market share. Uh, so, what you're seeing is is a consolidation towards the bigger brands. However, in the past two to three years, as as the game has kind of uh, exploded, coming out of the you know the initial years of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of new brands come in, uh, you know, and try to carve out little niches and uh you know every now and then one will you know just light it up uh you know like last year it was uh lab putters you know you had um you had lucas glover and and uh adam scott and and a bunch of people all of a sudden were playing the the broomstick lab and it, it got attention so there are little niche players who are making headway uh and there's a lot of people trying uh you know we if from our point of view, we we don't have, you know don't root for any individual brand. We just uh, try to provide the the basis to understand the marketplace. And but certainly, from our business point of view, the more brands doing well, the better better we are.
1: Well, the 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 big brands obviously are are going to do well. They may not do as well as they have in the past, but as these lesser brands are coming on the market, it they all are not going to be able to stick around if they're all trying to find that 25% of sales. I mean, it's it, it just yeah. doesn't seem likely.
3: No, I mean, I think the reality is, if you're a, a new company trying to get going in the golf equipment side, um, you, you have to set realistic goals, you know, trying to uh, supplant one of the big brands is number one, probably is not realistic. Uh, there's, you know, you need to you know, find your way into the top 10 would be right. the, the best way to approach it. But it's a, uh, it's a very competitive marketplace. The, the large brands are really careful about turning over every rock they can find to try to find, uh, sales opportunities, try to find products, you know, that work for the golfer, make it, make the game a little easier for them. Um, and, and they're not as, uh, 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 oblivious, perhaps to to opportunity, as uh, there was a time back in the '80s and '90s when so, some of the big brands got a little, little lazy, uh, didn't, weren't pursuing each of these new new opportunities, and uh, it, it kind of let some of the new brands take hold. You know, and that that's frankly what happened.
1: What about apparel sales? Has that gone up or down from uh, last year?
3: Yeah, apparel sales through the on and the off course channels, which is what we focus on, those have struggled very substantially over the past two years. We had, uh, we're still way above where we were in twenty nineteen, but the industry has never really um, recovered from when the pandemic hit. Because apparel it was a kind of a strange situation because typically most apparel around the country, at least in in the Northern markets, which are a a large percentage of the markets, they all ship on April 1. Uh, you know, that's there, that's like a key date when they're going to ship out all their product, the whole world shut down on what, March 15th, March 19th, something like that. So these, all the apparel guys were sitting there with warehouses full of product, ready to go. Uh, when all of a sudden they couldn't ship them and all their, and the, the account started canceling orders. And, and it, as you can imagine, it created a, uh, just a bit of a mess in the apparel yeah. business. And then they tried to ship them and they shipped them late. And so everything, uh, kind of went just went out of control and, and it hasn't totally come back. It's, um, they had a good year in 22, uh, where they, they were able to sell a lot, but Since then, uh, the apparel business has been a little tricky. Uh, Some high-end brands are doing exceptionally well. Uh, Some of the um, uh, others are are struggling a bit.
1: Yeah, and golf balls seem to be always uh, uh, doing well because the fact of the matter is most of the time people play, they lose more balls than (laughs) (laughs) than they figured that they would. I don't know, that that sounds
3: like you're projecting, Rich. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But but yeah, no, the reality is, I mean, the golf balls were in in something of a um, a steady state of decline, at least in unit sales, for about five or six years um, before the pandemic hit. Since the pandemic hit, it's been something of a a straight up, uh, as long as they've been able to Manufacturer, if you remember a year and a half, two years ago, we had a, a, a manufacturing issue that, um, right, very difficult to get balls. So, yeah, it's a bit of a downturn and a blip, but other than that, it's been pretty much straight up for golf ball sales since mostly in uh, dollars. Units have gone up slightly, uh, you know, have, have been going up, but not as fast as dollars as the average selling prices have gone up, you know, and so, um, those those balls you lose cost you a little more than they did before but that's you know that's the way of uh inflation that's the way yeah.
1: It's, yeah.
3: that's just yeah. kind of the way it is yeah
1: yeah i kind of uh, i see more people looking for their tea that they hit on the drive rather than their golf balls they give up on their golf balls like that and but they yeah. look for their favorite tea
3: well yeah i it, it's kind of like wearing the same socks two days in a row rich you might have been there, but <laughs>
1: How'd you know what I did today? Jeez, <laughs> like, I, I
3: had, a, had a good round yesterday. I think I'll wear those socks again. Doesn't hurt.
1: <laughs> well, I hope you change the other things. John, <laughs> always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, all right. Uh, sorry about your weather being 70 one day and 15 the next. But, hey, spring's so, coming. It's
3: supposed to be 70 this weekend, Rick. So we're hoping for the best.
1: All right. You have a great day. Thanks. Take care. Uh, all right. Thanks, John. Hi, I'm Jerry Foltz, Live Golf Analyst, and you're listening to the Back Nine Boys. And welcome back. I'm Rich Stiles. We are with in the office of David Arrington, a short game specialist here at the Sea Island Golf Performance Center. So when we talk about short game and being a specialist.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: We're talking about chipping,
2: putting, running it up, all those things. Um, I would say I've been brought here um, to Sea Island to be more chipping Um, I'm also a backup to uh, David Angelotti when David's not here or busy. If somebody needs a putting lesson, then I can help with that. But I would class my kind of area being anywhere from um, anywhere inside 50 yards is what they're kind of wanting me to do here.
1: Kind of the scoring shots. And, you know, it's interesting because a lot of people, when they talk about short game, Should I flop it? Should I hit it high? Should I hit it low? Should I bump and run? There's really no real answer to that. It kind of depends on the lie. Correct. And where the green is and what's in front of it.
2: Correct. I would always say, you know, look at where the ball is sitting, look at where the ball's going, and then see what's between you and the ball, if you wanted to keep it simple. So... Um, Most people don't. Though. No, they don't. I, I I, some, I, I don't know where I got this from, but I stole this little analogy. Where if you were tossing a ball and you were tossing it to a flag, you probably wouldn't throw it way up in the air, and you wouldn't roll it along the ground unless you absolutely had to. Generally, people would always pick a certain kind of flight. Some people pick land and spots. Some don't. Um, that's fine. There's no really rhyme or there's no hard and fast rule. So when people come to you and they want to improve their short game,
1: Mm -hmm. what do you find as far as the most common mistakes that they're
2: having that they come to you to improve? Um, Good question. I would say a general observation would be people struggle to control where they land the club and how deep they land the club. Which some people misunderstand, you can actually land the club very soon and it could also be very deep. There's loads of different, you know, you're just basically figuring out what that person struggles with. I would say most of my days are spent figuring out how to move people's landing spots a bit further forward. It's it's not often, I get, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it can, but sometimes. I find most people either land too early and really struggle to control that bottom of the radius or the arc.
1: Yeah, and I've I found that if you're in the sand trap, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but if you're short of the green yep. and you're trying to figure out whether you should run it up or flop it up, whatever... Um, a lot of people, because they don't have confidence in their wedges, mm-hmm. use eights or nines or sevens yep. to try and run it up, or even worse,
2: they putt it from 20 yards off the green. Could do, yeah, and I would, I might flip-flop beyond you there because I would say sometimes some of the best chippers on the planet will putt it if they can. Now, there's always, depends what's in front of you, what's your lie like, can you putt it? But if you're just off the green I wouldn't almost favour putting it rather than using your 7 iron you kind of lose me a little bit when you get to 7s and 8s because sometimes the ball can come off really hot and then it people struggle to, to judge the distance whereas they've used a putter before so I would be well if that's tried and tested then let's go that route
1: yeah, I've seen guys though from twenty yards, twenty-five yards off the green, putt it because they have no confidence no whatsoever in their short in, in their wedges.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a clinic the other day, and there were like it was a ladies' clinic, and I, I was continuously asked, "What clubs do you want me to hit?" And I said, "I want you to hit the clubs that you're not using," and most of them were the high lofted clubs because they feel like this lack of confidence and they're not sure how the club works Um, so most of them opted for that low running shot which is fine if they're good at it go for it use it but but I was asking them well what if there's a bit of rough in your way or what if the greens a bit elevated and I'm not saying you have to go higher but it's nice to have that option
1: yeah and also i've seen folks, and i 've had the same issue where you have a highly lofted club sixty fifty eight whatever, um, and you don't hit it hard enough mm-hmm. or you deaccelerate coming into the club, and then you why it didn't hit your mark and why you didn't get up closer to the hole
2: yeah yeah, and again, I think for most people if if they start improving the contact, improving the landing spot then they can start judging the flight easier and how far they're going to hit it. You know, I'll have people say, I'll ask them, what are you doing? Oh, I'm trying to use the bounce. And then I'll ask them, what is bounce? And they'll have have no clue. I'm like, well, uh, this is what bounce is. Um, You don't always have to use it. That's a very hot topic nowadays. But once they can put the bat on the ball and get a decent strike, then you can build off that and say, well, it's going to go this far. Or I need to go a little shorter, I need to more loft, I need to go a little further. Because that's the, the easiest way really to hit it further is change the club. But when you get to elite players, you know, like touring professionals, they are going to probably use a high lofted wedge for a majority of their shots. So if you were to recommend three wedges for people that are trying
1: to improve their short game, mm. what would be the lofts of those
2: wedges? that's a good question. I would say if we're going to go that route, you would have to know how far they hit the pitching wedge because now you're into gapping. But I would generally say, um, you know, a general rule of thumb is if you've got a 56-degree wedge, that's probably enough for most people, especially if you're getting scared of the 60. There's no need to be scared of it. It's just you're probably not using it correctly. But I would say if you have fifty six and then your next loft is maybe a fifty fifty one everybody's different right, but a good a good yardstick is see what loft your wedge is and then fill in the gaps from there. when it becomes a bit difficult is when players hit wedges quite a long way, then you've got big gaps to fill for, for most amateurs really or uh, weekend warriors fifty six degrees is pretty good um, if they want to go more great just know that they can and they just need to know how to use it
1: Yeah, I had a guy that I worked with up in North Carolina and he said more people think they need a 60 degree wedge when they really don't because that is the most in his words the most miss hit club in
2: your bag could be yeah I would say but then I would say you're probably miss hitting the 56 as well so you know it again it's very case specific if somebody's got ptsd on a 60 degree wedge then i'd move them away from it and just see what loft they're comfortable with and then maybe look to improve the technique or even just the way that they their ideas the concepts on how the wedge moves works on the ground and then like i say i, I think 60 degree wedges some people just don't need them And I would say, you know, keep away from them.
1: All right. You talked earlier that bounce is now a pretty big topic. And a lot of people who really don't know what bounce is are using the term, you know. And so what is bounce and why has it become so important and why
2: is it so varied in the kind of clubs that you have? um well people get for me people get latched into bounce and like i say they don't know what it is but generally if you turn the club upside down and you look at the leading edge you have the leading edge and then you have this high point of the sole when that high point of the sole gets higher or if you flip the club upside down put it on a piece of glass and you can't get that leading edge down that's generally a high bounce wedge <clears throat> I don't know of anybody that really fits wedges great. I think I, I've spent a lot of time with Vokey and Titleist. And the way I would fit a wedge for somebody is I would hand them a wedge and not let them know what they're using. So if, for example, I've given players a very low bounce wedge in horrible lies that if I'd have told them it was a low-bounce wedge, they wouldn't have believed it, they wouldn't have thought it would work. Hmm. So getting to my little thoughts on this is, it's quite important on how the sole of the club shaped, because I have two demo wedges that have the same loft, the same bounce, the same shaft, but the sole's contoured totally differently, and they'll feel totally differently on the ground, even though the bounce is the same. So it's what shape is the sole? Where is the relief on the toe or the heel, or is there no relief? Is the sole wide, fat? You know, you can and you can get fat, wide soles with low bounces. You can get fat, wide soles with high bounces. Um, the top and the tail of it for me is if you're sending that club downwards into the ground, I don't care how much bounce I give you. It could be catastrophic, whether you're lowering, lowering to the ground or you're not hitting the ground. Bounce, I've had players with very low bouncers hit excellent shots out of bunkers, grain, rough, tight lies. So you've got to kind of be careful, and a, a proper wedge fitting is really a
1: good way to start. So you would recommend, not only from a fitting standpoint, um, which I know a lot of people are now getting fitted more than they have before, but yep. wedges is probably a very important fit to
2: have. Yeah, because it's a complex delivery. And I think, like for example, I could name a player, who a very good player, who was at a facility and a club fitter was there. The player was looking at this wedge and his coach was there also. And the club fitter, who is a very good club Fit. I said, oh, don't use that wedge because that's going to be no good for you. Well, then his coach stepped in and said, well, actually, player A de- delivers the club in such a way that that might actually work. Uh, the player tried the wedge, loved it, and took it with him. Huh. And that was a touring professional, a right. very, very, a major winning tour professional. So I think you have to cast aside this well, I dig, so I need lots of bounce, or I'm shallow, or I don't dig, I need no bounce. It's like, there's more to it.
1: One of the issues, I think, with wedges, um, and I call it trying to be too cute. You're trying to, to hit a hard shot, mm. and you're trying to hit it softly, but you're trying to get it to the hole, yep. and you end up de-accelerating coming through the club
2: because you're afraid to make a mistake. Could do, I've seen, yeah, I had a lady this morning actually who was actually trying to pause or slow down her change of direction of the club and I actually encouraged her to go the other way but by the same token I had a gentleman, an elder gentleman yesterday who was a lovely little chipper, he could hit that little low running draw chip And he was what I would call a very short to long. So he was a very accelerated, he would accelerate rapidly through the shot. And that was equally detrimental to his like feel, contact, touch. So you get like opposing, you know, you've got ways to control the distance, strike, then you can go into like swing length, swing tempos, and everybody's different.
1: Yeah, it's a wide range of issues, obviously. Yeah. What causes a... Uh, let's see, where you're by the green, blading the... And, and it just goes phew, a lot farther than you
2: wanted it, and it goes over the green. What causes that? Could be... Uh, I, my first guess would be uh, the club hasn't touched the ground. So you might just have... You, you might be making a decent motion, but the ball's on the ground at some point it doesn't do you any harm to touch the ground. Or you could have somebody who lands the club early and the club then is almost taking or going upwards. The bounce. It could bounce. There could be a plethora of things. It kind of goes back to that low point or that touch point. Where are you landing the club? How deep is it? How, how are you controlling the arc depth and all that kind of good technical stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find sometimes when I'm looking up, and again, looking up on a shot mm-hmm. is going to affect every aspect of your game, but especially in your short game, if you look up just before you hit the ball, trying to see where it's going to go, you got to keep your head down so you can
2: correct or not. Ooh, that's a hot topic as well. I just had another lady today. She was trying to keep her head down and keep her head still. And I think it's one of the worst tips in golf. Hmm. I think, I'm, I'm not saying I want somebody in the backswing looking at where they're going, but if you think of any, if you were tossing a ball or bowling a ball, you would let your head and eyes release with your hand. You, because if you're trying to rotate and move forward into your lead foot, keeping your head down and still, your neck doesn't like it, your thorax wants to, your chest wants to open up and keeping your head looking at the ball can be very detrimental.
1: All right, so they need to call you, book a lesson
2: and you'll help them become better. Of course. Yeah, I'd love to. Anybody wants to come out, I I love so, solving people's problems, you know, and everybody's different and I have a few no-nos that I like to see and like not people to do or have people move in a certain other direction, but most of it is very very like Clear dependent David thank you thank you very much you've been listening to the Fact 9 Boys golf show with Rich Stiles go to
3: fact9boys.com for all things golf whenever you want it we'll be back next week with an all new Fact 9 Boys at fact9boys.com